0: How many of you have been enjoying this abnormally warm winter? Yeah, yeah. I, I heard Florida's moved north, and uh, we've got a little bit of it. And um, today, I'm, I am i really intend to finish up this series on love, um, which we focused on loving your enemies. How many of you remember that? Uh, loving your enemies, and, um, and then... We talked about loving the church, and last week we focused on loving the lost, and it was just a living example. Sarah came and she showed us how she is loving the lost, and, um, and my wife and I were talking about loving the lost and talking about the way Sarah loves the lost, and um, and this is just an insight to the way my brain thinks sometimes. I was feeling a little... Uh, it's not self-deprecating humor, it's the other. It's just looking down on yourself, thinking, man, I'm such a subpar Christian. I don't, you know, I didn't start out as a prostitute and I didn't uh, get saved uh, from the life of drugs and stuff. And my story is totally different and I just pastor people. I don't really do anything significant. This is the way that I was talking to her. And she's like, oh, honey, but you're creative. I'm like, just it just didn't really do much babe you need to you need to practice on the whole encouragement thing and uh, she's like but you're really creative I was like yeah still not going there and uh, but then she dropped this zinger and she goes you just need to stop comparing yourself to other people's and I was like oh and that's why I married you Amen. and she's like God built each and every one of us different to reach different people and I was like I'm so glad you reminded me of that. I know that. I'm not a slacker. I'm baby-stepping. I'm a preacher. I know. I know this stuff, you know? And she just encouraged me, and she's just like, come on, you've you got to really keep your focus on where God's put you and how God's made you. And it really stirred my heart to encourage all of us. It doesn't matter where you've come from, but I can tell you the common denominator, Scripture says it in this way, the comfort that you have found, that's the same quality That's the DNA of the comfort that you're going to give to other people. So for Sarah, hearing how she came out of all the stuff she came out of, it's no surprise that God uses her to comfort those that are coming out of the same kind of situation. For me, it's no surprise that I'm comforting a religious generation. I'm comforting them and trying to get them out of their religious wineskins that is abusive and put them in a place that's real. Because I know what that's like. Anybody else know what that's like? And I do not want to go back to an old religious wineskin. I want Jesus, and I want Jesus to mess me, mess me up, wreck me, and, and tear down whatever weird contrived religion I might have and show me how to live for Jesus in real terms. And and so loving people, you know, is very difficult for us as human beings. But thank Jesus, he showed us how to love. And if we follow that example, no matter where we've come from, we're going to love people that God has purposed long before you drew your first breath for you to love that group of people or that set of people in a specific way. And um, I I have always been drawn to the creative people. I love them. And my heart breaks for them. And I've always been drawn to those who have been enshrined in some form of dead religion. I just love them. And, um, And I don't know how God built you. But I know the comfort that you find in Jesus is what you're going to turn around and comfort others with. And, and so I was thinking about how do I summarize up these three messages about loving your enemies, loving the church, loving the lost. And I was sitting here thinking about how love is synonymous with give in so much of what we discussed. You think about the sacrifices that Sarah's made to reach the people that she's reaching. You think about the sacrifices that any one of us make when we love someone. And uh, when you love the church, you sacrifice for the church. And, um, and it's so healthy to think of love in terms of giving because that's how Christ first loved me. He showed me it by giving. Giving me kindness when I didn't deserve it. Giving me mercy when I definitely didn't deserve it. Taking the initiative. He gave first. And so I learned a lot about love just by looking at what Jesus has done. And, and so then I'm sitting there thinking about love in terms of giving and then my mind went to this thought. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 it has this phrase that I wanted to talk on last week about loving the lost and it's this phrase in verse 10 of chapter 19. For the son of man has come to seek and save what? that which was lost. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you're going to look at the context of this verse, you would see immediately this is in the context of a story that many of us remember in this room. The story of a wee little man, Zacchaeus. How many of you remember this story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he... You know, he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? And uh, along came Jesus, and he's looking at Jesus, and Jesus stops. And Zacchaeus was kind of an outsider to the Jewish community because he was really the tax man. And he would make his living by tacking on a little extra. And uh, and so they really looked at him uh, poorly. You're you're, a, you're kind of a turncoat. You're one of these people that the Roman government hires, and you're a Jew, but you're hired by the Roman government to tax your fellow man, and so you're really kind of a traitor. You've you've turned and joined the enemy, and now you're taking our money, and you're you're really putting a financial pinch on us. And uh, oops, sorry about that. And um, and and so he's really saying that in this context, Zacchaeus, this person who is looked down upon and is really an outcast God is saying I've come to seek and save that guy that guy and when we say the word seek and save I've got to stop on that word save that word save is a word that means freedom or release from harm both physically and spiritually a freedom Or a release from harm both physically and spiritually. So, God has come to release people just like a Zacchaeus from the things that are harming him physically. God has come to release people like a Zacchaeus from things that are harming him spiritually. So, seeking and saving those that are gonna get harm is God's heartbeat. And I thought, Lord, that's what this whole sermon series was about. Um, We want to save even those who are at some points our enemies, because they might be our brother and sister later. We want to save somebody that um, we want to reach people that are within the church, because you might not ever really think about this, but there's other people in the church every Sunday that might be on um, the end of their rope. This might be the last time you see them. And I want to seek and save them. And that seeking part means you've got to have eyes like Jesus and you're looking at what he's looking at and you're ready to, I guess, stop and notice Zacchaeus. And so in that story, um, it's, it's like Jesus stopped and noticed Zacchaeus and said, okay, even though maybe figuratively you're a small man, Everybody in the community looks down on you. I'm going to stop and make you big. I'm going to make you the main point of this whole day. So he stopped and he recognized Zacchaeus. And then Zacchaeus was maybe up until that time we could surmise that he was a selfish man. He was probably uh, very unlikely con- to consider what other people were you know, needy or whatever. And Jesus redefines him. He treated him not as he really was in that moment. He treated him as almost as a person of faith could. He's like, no, nope, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to spend time with you. Everybody looking said, he's a sinner. He's not somebody you should totally spend time with. But God says, no, he is the person that I should spend time with. He just spoke prophetically over Zacchaeus. It brought about a transformation in Zacchaeus' life. And Jesus came not just into his house. Literally, spiritually, Jesus came into his life and brought sozo, freedom, from any harm physically and any future harm spiritually. And by doing that, the love of Jesus destroyed the works of Satan in Zacchaeus's life. Okay, stay with me for a second. That's really where love conquers all. The whole point of love our enemies is so that we can overcome what the devil wants to do through that whole conflict. The reason we love the church is because through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed. His purposes for destroying the works of the enemy are displayed through the congregation when we love like Jesus tells us to love. That's what 1 John says. If you're going to love, then you're going to demonstrate the very purposes of God. You're going to destroy the works of the enemy. And and so I see that this love has such a purpose for bringing freedom to destroy the works of the devil. So that's a beautiful thing. And when it comes to the lost person like a Zacchaeus, we have got to have that compassion and know that that is such a high calling to love those that are unlovely in their misery, in their mess, and take that initiative. Boy, I really do believe one of my favorite verses, and it was part of the kind of a group of verses that stirred the name of this church. Ephesians 10, 3 verses 10 through 11. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety, in its manifold layers to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus Christ. Man, That eternal plan, God destroying the works of the enemy. I uh, read a parable years ago by Soren Kierkegaard, and I wanted to bring it up today. And it's um, it's called the cellar dweller. I've shared it because um, before, because I just love the I love it. I love the parable. Uh, imagine with me for a minute a man who lives in one of these kind of cool downtown brownstones that are say four stories and beautiful historic homes and uh, all four stories you know 13 foot ceilings and beautiful woodwork and everything and probably decked out the floors are finished nicely the stairs are just elaborate it's just beautiful and um and right in the heart of, you know, that thriving metropolis. And then it's got this basement that if you were to walk along the side, sidewalks, you could see the graded, you know, guards over the top of it that you could take off and kind of see down into the basement part of it, where probably they've used it for storage or maybe a, a workroom or something like that. But in this particular case, there's a man who lives in that basement. And he's very happy down there. He's got his little bed down there and, and all that kind of stuff, even though it's an old home, over 100 years old or more, and it's kind of dank with big basement walls, and it uh, doesn't get much sunlight. Um, but he's happy and content. He's been living there for decades. The, the crazy thing, though, is, is while he's been living there, the first floor has been vacant. And not just the first floor, the second, the third, and the fourth floor have all been vacant, even though beautifully finished and fully furnished. And the man has been down there content, coming and going. His friends would talk to him often and say, What are you doing down there? Why don't you just go and live in one of the other floors? Oh, no, no, I I can't do that. You know, that's too fancy for me. That's really not. I mean, especially the first floor where all of the fancies. That's not my style. Well, then why don't you move up to the second or third or fourth floor? Any one of those. I mean, they're all vacant. Why don't you move into one of those? And and he just refuses. No, that's, that's not for me. I'm happy down here. This is where I live. And he was really convinced of that. And here's where Soren Kierkegaard switches and brings the truth. The reality of this particular parable is that this man owned the entire house. And was resigned to live in the lowest level possible. And that to me is equivalent to the works of the enemy. When Satan comes, he comes for these purposes. To steal. What does he steal from you? He steals your purpose, your design, your your joy. He steals so much from you, doesn't he? You sin, you have shame. What did he just steal from you? He stole that sense of Uh, innocence maybe, or confidence. You have now shame in its place. Isn't that horrible when Satan steals that? What what happens when um, there's a bad habit and stronghold in your life of thinking? Maybe you have, you call it your German DNA or your Irish fighting whatever, or your, I don't know. You have all these excuses and justifications for your DNA or however, and this is just the way I am. Bottom line is, is it's an undisciplined nature And it is causing bad results. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh destruction. What does Satan come to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. Through those bad habits and undisciplined life, we end up like a Samson. Who cares what your talent is? You remember Samson? Strong man called to be a deliverer, a judge, and to have this Nazarite vow represent his purity and devotion to the Lord. But because of an undisciplined nature, he sowed to his flesh destruction and reaped destruction. Lost his eyes, became a prisoner of war, was mocked and ridiculed to the day he died. Why? Just because he had an undisciplined nature. And Satan stole so much of his potential. I, often I tell people, you're a Ferrari. You just have no gas. I, no, I should say fuel. All the car guys are like, it's not gas, it's fuel, idiot. Okay, so, but I like saying I have gas. And uh, I just like saying that. So it's funny. And uh, so, I mean, you're a Ferrari, but Satan comes and he steals your fuel. So you don't have it, you can't go anywhere. And, and, and he takes away all of the beautiful things that you are meant to do because of undisciplined lifestyle. How many have experienced that before? I've experienced that before. You get robbed of potential and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and then not just that, he loves to kill things. And Satan comes and he kills stuff. And whenever there's sin, there's death. And, um, and I look at the death that comes about when we are selfish, When you're selfish, there's so many things that die. Um, You know, the quickest way to kill a relationship is just to be self-centered. Just be um, totally narcissistic. Be selfish. And what happens? Satan comes and he kills that relationship. No one likes a friend that only thinks about themselves. (laughs) They just don't. And no one likes a generous person that is always doing it for self-centered, false humility reasons. You get tired of that person, too. Did I lose you on that one? No, okay, okay because there's, there's that false pride, and people who are never secure in who they really are go the other extreme, and they destroy life just as effectively as those that are narcissistic and selfish. Ooh, that's a deep thought. Um, and so I, I just hate the way the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, But like Soren says, if we're going to love people, part of what we've got to do is come against the works of the enemy. And as a church... When I say, let's love the enemies, let's love the church, let's love the lost, what I'm telling us to do is to take up our spiritual weapons, the other weapons that are listed in Scripture, and to wage this battle with words, with actions, in such a way that we tear down strongholds that are destroying lives, killing relationships, robbing people of their purpose and their destiny. I want to sozo an entire generation. I want to stop and recognize the Zacchaeuses. Of the world and say, hey, you can't hide. God has a purpose for you. Come on down out of that tree. Let's have some lunch. Let's talk about your purpose. Let's talk about what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life. And um, I, I really do see that we are on a a mission to search and destroy the works of the enemy to search and destroy the works of the enemy. I love these whole military kind of like, genre of movies and things like that. I just imagine myself as a Navy SEAL and things like that. I just think it's so wonderful. And um, yeah, the closest thing that I got to do that was you know laser tag when I got to shoot Nate. <laughs> so, and, and uh, it's just, it's just fun. I don't know, speed walking around and all that kind of stuff. And spiritually speaking, I think a lot of times we forget we're in a war. We're in a war. When you got saved, you weren't taken out of a battle. You actually woke up to a battle. And you're right in the middle of a major war. A buddy of mine, he's an artist, um, Matt Faleo, he, he painted this picture of a tea party is the name of it. It's a tea party. And it's this beautiful, like, Renaissance Victorian-looking, like, table with all the tea and stuff. You know, stuff that Kathy would love, I'm sure, because it's so girly and dainty. And uh, stuff like that. It's just beautiful and perfect and all that. And totally man's... Okay, Nate would like it, too. I'm sorry. And... Uh, <laughs> So, so, and, and here they are with pinkies raised, sipping their hot tea. And then the setting of this painting is in the middle of like this World War One battle. There's bloody bodies, there's explosions, there's dark mists and weird fogs and men at, you know, at the peak of animosity. And yet there's this little table in the middle and they're just... Eh. And that's often what Christians think. Jesus, come and rescue me from my struggles. And in our minds, we're expecting God to make everything that's bad good, put us at the tea party table, in the middle of the war, and make everything perfect. But in God's heart, he says, no, when I save you, I want you to follow my example. I came to serve, not be served. I came to wash feet, not to be the foot. I mean, I came to actually work. And, and what I, I mean, First John says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, yes, but to destroy the works of the enemy. So when John says that, that was God's purposes. From the Garden of Eden until the day that Jesus became incarnate, took on flesh, his purpose was eternal, and he knew from the very beginning to the very end, I am going to destroy the works of Satan. This is why it was prophesied in Genesis that the Son of Man would crush Satan's head. And, and so I love that story. That means your purposes. According to Ephesians 3:10, your purpose and my purpose is to destroy the works of the enemy. That sounds like a war. That sounds like a battle. And, and so what are our weapons? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says this. We don't walk in the flesh or war according to the flesh. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. We don't do this warfare. In the flesh. In fact, verse 4 the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying thoughts, imaginations, all kinds of information and knowledge that is raised against the knowledge of God. Think about the world that we live in we got experts everywhere, experts leading the country, experts on the school boards, experts in all kinds of community forums, and they're all telling us how we should live and the ultimate goals of school, of government, of your household, of your children. If any of those things are anti what God says, then your job is to wage warfare, Think about that. Your job is to wage warfare. This is seeking and saving that was which is lost. We don't do it like a jerk. Think about how Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus. He didn't stop and go, hey, stupid. Hey, stupid, who believes all this stupid stuff. Get down here, stupid. I want to go have some lunch with you, stupid. You know, he doesn't say that. St- okay, I think this is okay. Evidently, Jesus was Italian, too. He was, uh, he was partly Italian. I don't know why. Sorry, it just happened. And, uh... <laughs> he doesn't do that instead he's like hey let's go have a coffee <laughs> how about we go eat i'll buy you know i mean it's like he, he just was a totally different approach and people really criticized him but he was waging war he was destroying what satan was doing in zacchaeus's life zacchaeus had a thought about himself i'm a loser my only way to succeed in this life is to take advantage of the people that i should be loving I mean, they're a part of my national heritage. I should be a part of them. There should be some, you know, fidelity here, but there's none. I, I, it's all about me, all about self. Until God comes in and says, "Hey, it could be about something else. It could be about me. It could be about heaven. It could about it could be about eternity. I could have a different purpose for you. Instead of a taker, you could be a giver. Yeah. You could you could give back four times what you've ever taken." And Zacchaeus is thinking, "What? What?" And instead of eating in anybody's house, he said, hey, you thought you were the least, the one that nobody liked? How about you get to the honor of Jesus eating at your table? No! Yeah, I'm redefining you. Now everybody's going to go, hey, that's the guy who ate with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is in the business of destroying what we think about ourselves. And we need to wage war about what we think about ourselves and what other people think about themselves. Have you ever been, okay, husbands, here's what we need to do to Wives. Love them. (laughs) Say yes. No, okay, okay. Here's what we need to do. Wash them with the Word of God. Wash them with the Word of God. Wash their mind. Wash their hearts with the Word of God. And what does that look like? You as a man have to know enough of the Bible so that when there is something that your lovely spouse is saying to you that doesn't line up with what God says about her, then you wash her mind with what God says about her. This is when you start talking to her. Oh no, honey, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, oh, but I just, I feel fat today. Well, honey, there's more of you to love. <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, I can't. I, <laughs> I need to get saved. Okay, pray, pray for me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Half the church, all the women are not going to come back next week. That's like, you mean man. I was like, I know, hey. And, uh, you know, you have to wash them with the word of God. You know, when they don't know what their purpose is and they're struggling with, you know, direction, you say, hey, you know what? God's going to lead you. And you know what? You're God's kid and he's speaking to you. And that what you said. I mean, that was right on. And you speak hopefully. You speak expectant. You speak uh, cheerfully. You kind of ignore all the negative junk that the enemy wants to come down and erode their confidence. You build their confidence up. You can do that. Oh, God's grace in you is more sufficient than you realize. I just don't know what to say. You are going to know exactly what to say. Don't think about it. Just say it, because God's going to fill your mouth with the right words. Really? And you begin to talk this stuff up. And um, you as the husband have to be the best washer of the mind because if you don't do that job someone else is going to pick it up and often the enemy uses a real need that God wants to satisfy in a healthy way i.e. husband washing the mind and the enemy comes and says oh that real need how about your co-worker wash your mind you know you look real good today well thank you no one ever notices me well i do See what I'm talking about? Oh man. Some of you are like, mm hmm. Turn to tell your wife, you look real good today. You look real good today. Nobody else is telling you, you look real good today. I'm telling you that. You know, and you begin washing each other in their minds, and, and that's waging warfare. Same thing for wives. You have to do it to your husbands. And, and this is the craziest thing. We live in a generation where. Um, women in our culture in general have shot themselves in the foot with this feminine culture that's been tolerated within the church and without the church. And so all of the aching need that feminism has tried to answer is resulting in greater depression. And and so this this was crazy. Hang with me for a second. Um, uh, Psychologists have noticed that during the time of um, this Last 10-year period where feminism has grown to such extreme expressions, uh, uh, where men have been put in a box and belittled in significance, and women have been exalted to the point of exaggeration almost, you would think that women would have a corresponding sense of self, like, I'm doing great. Actually, the opposite is true. There is an increase of depression in women. The more they have said, we're doing great, we're all that and a bag of chips, they're feeling worse about themselves. The more that they say, men and masculinity is toxic. A man who doesn't empathize is a brute. We have no tolerance for brute men. We need more girl boys who are in touch with your feelings. Well... I'm just here to say a shout out to the uh, uh, man, uh, because here's, the, here's what psychologists have said, and this is so rampant, just do some simple searches. In this height of toxic man, toxic man, do you know that we have seen an increase in imagination and pornographic archetypes for women that say the exact opposite? They are drawn, Fifty Shades of Grey, I didn't watch it, <laughs> just in case you're like, <gasps> no, I didn't watch it, but I'll tell you, it was one of the most popular book series, and one of the most popular movies, in the midst of a generation that says, women are standing against, in the midst of the Me Too movement, where they said, we hate abusive, um, objectifying man, they love an abusive, objectify, objective, ab- abusive man, they love that in story. Why? We're messed up. And we've got to wage a warfare that says, wait, 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 wait." toxic women? Nope, we need to deal with that. Toxic men? Yes, we need to deal with that. How do we deal with this? You need the standard of the word of God. And so women have got to start building up men because this world has done the devil's work and destroyed them. So women have to God, they have to almost pick up this banner and turn to their man and say, hey, you know what? You have significance in my eyes. You are the best catch in the lifetime. It's like, yeah, I just love you. And, you know, my wife is excellent at this. I, I, I've given her a list of things to say. <laughs> she, just, she just goes down. Him and I'm like, could you repeat number 10 again one more time? One more time. Louder. Record it now. And you know, I mean, she just does really good. And you've got to become an expert in washing even your husband's mind and heart. Um, I tell you, more and more, I've seen men, and they are secretly insecure, and in they're suffering. And the thing that they need most is someone to be in their court, someone to back them up, and to applaud them, and to celebrate them, even when they're flawed. And uh, and I think that is wonderful. And uh, and that's one of the ways we wash each other with the Word of God. Um, and it's our weapon of warfare. And it's not just that, but it's also in doctrinal issues and things that we say. This is what we believe. But if it's just easy believism and we're talking doctrine and dogma, it could be disconnected from life. And we can't allow that. So when someone says, well, I believe, and it's not connected to their life, wage warfare with that. When someone talks about loving, but they tolerate abortion, wage some warfare. Just really, wait, 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 I thought you just said you, you love. Why aren't you loving the unborn? Whoa. And, and have a discussion. Don't be offensive. Try not to be offensive. You're still going to be offensive. Anytime you are a Christian and you're going to wage war against what the enemy is going to do, people will not like you. They're just going to be offended. And um, you have to be the one when someone says, I just don't know what to do with my child. My child is you know, struggling with gender dysphoria. And you, you've got to be the Christian that says, well, what are you doing about that? How are you talking to him? What, what are you saying? And you need to be able to wage some warfare and say, no, wait a wait, minute. Wait. God made us man and woman, and, and this is the way God made it. And you know what? Maybe there's an identity struggle there. What are the influences in life? You begin to start to talk to them. Yeah, right. And and you build them up in the understanding of what God says, not what the world says. And you might have to actually tell them, you need to shut off all those influences that are feeding this kind of junk. You just need to get, get that kid away from that and and shut that down. And people struggle with this stuff. And you know what? They often think Christians are going to judge them unfairly. Maybe it's because we're too quiet and they don't have experience. We misunderstand what we don't have experience with. So maybe Christians need to start relating more with people that are struggling with things. In other words, we need to engage in the battle so that we remove that misunderstanding. And then they'll go, you know what? Christians aren't all jerks. There's some nice Christians out there. Wow, I could actually talk with them. And and we'll win them over to God's standards. These are some good things. Um, There are two areas where I felt we need to focus on in waging this warfare. And here's the two areas. I believe the weapons of our warfare are going to have these two main focuses. The weapon of character and the weapon of renewed thoughts. Since I touched on thoughts here for a little bit, I want to talk a little bit more on the weapon of character. So when I say the weapon of character and the weapon of renewed thoughts, um, these are the things that I believe really make differences in our lives if we are persistent and consistent in these things. So the weapon of character, what is that? Well, um, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we hear a little phrase, and it's from the first bad guy in Scripture, Cain, Cain. Anybody remember Cain? Cain killed his brother Abel. And, um, and he was struggling with his inner demons. And God, no doubt in the form, uh, an early form of Christ, speaking to Cain, says, why are you so sad? Why are you so struggling with your inner man? Why is your soul so downcast? And he goes, oh, your harsh judgment on me, all my consequences. He basically says this to them. Hey, Sins at your door, you need to become its master. You need to master it, or it's going to eat you for lunch. That's my paraphrase. So what does that mean in our DNA? Galatians says that we have got to be a master of putting off the things of our flesh. And we we got to learn the traits and habits of our flesh that are contradicting the very nature of God. And we got to put that stuff off. It takes discipline, accountability, all the stuff none of us like. But we've got to do it. And, um, and those things are what take the firepower out of the enemy. The enemy can't steal, kill, and destroy when you have a character, a walk, a righteousness that is building a standard against the enemy, a wall against the enemy. Man, this is good. Some of the things in Scripture, like in Ephesians 4.28, it says, A thief must learn to work and share. That's character right there. If you're a, a cut-and-corners kind of guy, you need to stop cutting corners. That's about character. Um, if you're cheating people, you got to stop cheating. you got to be fair. Um, it says in Romans 13, 14, you're not to make any provision for your flesh. Stop leaving little morsels of food to feed those character flaws. Not flaws in the world's eyes, but flaws in God's eyes. And uh, I remember one of my uh, mentors, uh, Dr. Cornwall. Dr. Cornwall um, used this illustration about the ape. And he said, man, when an ape is really small, a baby ape, he says, you can hold them, feed them. And you almost feel like they're your pet. But you keep feeding them. Those apes get big. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Massive ape. And at some point, even while they're still in their adolescence, one of those big ape arms could knock your little body down and crush you, let alone when they become this massive silverback, you know, I mean, it just could kill you so easily, you wouldn't even think about it or break a sweat. That's our flesh. Your flesh is an undisciplined, untrained, brute ape. And that big, nasty gorilla flesh, if we feed it, we might think we've starved it to the point where it's just this little baby thing. Oh no, no, no! That thing is growing. With every little morsel of something that you feed to it, or you stop um, disciplining yourself, something happened there. Is this your fire? Something? Did I go off? I testing one, two. Are we there? Do I need that? Right there? This is so good. I need two microphones. <laughs> and um, so this is the gorilla microphone. Chimpanzee microphone. <laughs> and uh, so, you want this one? Okay, thank you. And uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I am so <laughs> That's my undisciplined flesh. Bad pastor. And uh, so, so, I remember when Cornwall said this, he says, man, young men have got to make no provision for that gorilla to grow. That's our job. And, um, and in doing that, we win over the enemy. In fact, I used to tell people, I said, if you want to hear about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare is more practical than it is spooky and unseen spiritual. It's more practical. Start with the stuff you can see, and that's tangible, and you will be guided more effectively in the spiritual realm of spiritual warfare. In other words, stop going to the bar long before you start cursing and casting out the demon of drunkenness. Stop going to the bar. <laughs> Don't go to the websites and continue to just start casting out that demon alone. Stop going to the websites. And, and eventually you're going to learn how to balance out that other stuff. You know, if, if this is a, stop cursing the disease of diabetes if you're still eating the cookies and the donuts, Pastor Ben, <laughs> stop eating the sugar and living more balanced. Life, and then you'll have a little bit. Does that make sense? And, and it goes in all kinds of areas. If you, if you feel like there's division in your home, well, then what is the practical source that you don't have to work real hard to understand what the division is? Stop blaming the devil for your undisciplined flesh. You've got to kill that gorilla before it's abusive and destroys your home. Start killing it. Then you can cast out demons and spiritual stuff with just your presence or a word. You don't have to sweat to fight the devil. You sweat to take off the flesh and kill it. That's what we sweat on. The spiritual work that we do, the priests in the Old Testament were not allowed to enter the presence of the Lord with sweat. Does this make sense? They were not. If you entered into the presence of the Lord with sweat, that was considered unholy. God could judge you. Mm -hmm. So this is so true. We've switched that all around. In spiritual warfare, we've almost thought it holy to sweat. Work harder. No, we need to work harder on the flesh side of stuff. Kill the flesh. And then the spiritual stuff is easier. Little kids could cast out the biggest, ugliest demon. I mean, little kids. And they don't even need to sweat. And uh, so, anyway... Character and that, that, uh, that whole warfare is so good. Um, another part about character involves our priorities and what we desire and want. This is a character issue. Have you ever met somebody that has undisciplined or unrestrained wants and desires, and they're just scattered going for anything and everything? It's something in their demeanor, and they've got to learn to discipline their heart. They have to discipline their heart and say, no, 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 no. Come on, be godly and content with just what God's made provision for. Stop shooting for the moon all the time. Be disciplined, be realistic. It's not a killjoy. It's called being smart and being responsible with the resources and the time that God's given you. And um, these things that we undisciplined want, we want and we undiscipline it. Are the reasons there is so much strife and envy and all these problems in the world? James tells us what's causing quarrels in the church, and you can expand it to outside the church. What's causing quarrels? People have so many wants and they're not disciplining it. Right now, I'm gonna tell you, there's so many. Where do we want to go? So a character issue is this. I I just heard one um, uh, therapist talk about the, the balance between giving your children the things that you have the freedom to give them or let them work to get it. And he said, there's actually a phenomenon where a wife or a a mother, that mother instinct, overly mothers and loves and provides and nurtures to the point of the detriment of that person. And I can't remember the term of it, but it's, it's sad when a mom or a father loves so much and gives so much that it destroys the character of the kid. And, and so then it kind of flips to the other side and say, well, that's why we don't give our kids anything. they got to lift themselves up out of the mire. Well, there's a balance there, okay? There's a balance there. And, uh, and we've got to wrestle with what that looks like. But spiritually, we've got to do that even to ourselves and to the friends and family members that are in our life. You've got to be willing to say to them, hey, wait a minute. You might think you have the freedom to want whatever you want, You're not even good in this area. Why would you go shooting over there? Can I bring this home to maybe some of us close? Pastor, I feel called. I feel this is my holy mark. I'm like, you definitely marked. You marked as a crazy person. And you marked as a crazy person because you can't be consistent in your family. You can't be consistent at your job and you can't be consistent in a church, and you are all over the place, and then you come to me, and you have a divine calling and insight, revelation. I think you are crazy. So until your wife says you're normal, until you've been in the church for more than a year, until you've had the same job for more than a year, I won't even have this conversation with you. (gasps) That's called, you have lots of wants. And if I'm not going to give in to your wants, I'm going to confront and be that warfaring man of God and say, wait, 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 wait. First the practical, then the spiritual. And let's fight this. And so this is why I think it's good when we have conversations with people. No, plug in, serve. That's not my calling. I didn't ask if this was your calling. I just wanted to know if you're a humble person and care about other people and not yourself. Would you serve in this capacity? Oh, yeah, if you put it that way. Can you do it with joy now? oh that's asking a lot I don't know about that can I do with joy well you need some deliverance I don't believe in that stuff well you need it I'm gonna take you down the altar and cast you out of yourself and like man and uh so I mean that stuff is all about character and um since Bill and Sarah are not here right now I told Petraea I said you know I I think God's timing is perfect It really is Um, because whenever God prunes, he prunes for growth. And I believe that this is the time for people in our church to take that responsibility and say, you know what? I am no longer going to be comfortable in my stage of development that I've been at. I'm going to grow every time we grow there. It takes effort. You have to establish a new normal. But it's worth it. There's value there. You're going to have greater uh, blessings and freedoms with more responsibility that you take on. It, It really is. It's beautiful. But man, we've got to have another generation of leaders that will mimic the path that people like Bill and Sarah have done. I have never once had to worry about their faithfulness. When they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. I've never had to doubt their loyalty. They understand what Scripture says about the unity of the church. We do not agree on everything exactly. But I have never once worried about the unity. I'm telling you, church, we need unity. But is anybody in this room going to fight for that? I think there is. I think there's a lot. You're going to fight for unity. And, um, and on and on, I just believe that this is the season where we're going to see character and right priorities and what we want come together and we're going to be able to wage warfare in a healthy way. Um, I'm going to leave with the second... Thought on renewed thinking. Let's just say it like this. If the first weapon that I, I believe is the weapon of character and mastering character and all of that, and God just bringing uh, freedom and destroying the works of the devil through that weapon of character, the other thing is the renewed thinking. Um, in Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. Ooh, wow. And there are so much in Scripture where it tells us to take thoughts captive, grab them, and almost have an objective perspective about what we're thinking, what's going through our mind. Um, I've asked our leaders at different times, like, well, we use that phrase, well, who told you that? Or where'd that thought come from? We need to ask ourselves that. Where'd that thought come from? And, and so here is a, a prescription. If you're taking notes, I, I'd like you to do this kind of a process. And you could do it in your devotions make three boxes and in the first box you can title this the capture box capture in that box you are going to write down the thing that doesn't line up with scripture that is what you're thinking the thought that isn't appropriate in light of what the bible says you need to write that thought down it could be anything You're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you know, or, you know, your feet smell or something like that, or I don't know, it could just be whatever, you know, nobody likes you, or you're always going to fall apart, you're never going to amount to anything, or whatever it could be. It could, it could just be the thing that destroys that life of God in you. Write that thought down. Don't write 10 of them, focus on just one. And that thought, and you'll know that thought because it's familiar. It's a broken record. It plays often in your mind. And maybe in those moments of weakness or you're tired, that's the thought that pops in your mind. It might be the first thing in your mind when you wake up and the last thing before you go to bed. It might run through your mind. Write that thing down and and spend time thinking about it and clarify it so that you know exactly what that thought is. You've captured it then. Now you use either a topical Bible. Or you're familiar enough with Scripture that you can identify an actual section of Scripture that addresses that very thought. And you will take that Scripture and you will note that Scripture down. Spend some time thinking about it until you find the one that really is the silver bullet that addresses that thought. And you write that Scripture reference down there. You can paraphrase the verse. Write out the verse in the next box. That's the confession box. You've got the capture box. The middle, you've got your confession box. And that's a beautiful way to write that scripture down. Then the third box, this is your application box. Now, in your devotions, you'll do this same process over and over again for seven to ten weeks. You go, oh, pastor, you're just getting way too nitty gritty. I don't do anything like this. Well, you probably are still struggling with that same stinking thinking for the last, what, how long? So if you're, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, then maybe you'll try this method. It really does work. And it's not just me saying it. It's me saying, if you take the discipline to go through this seven to 10 weeks, somewhere around the fourth or fifth week, you're gonna feel like, oh my gosh, this is feeling great. Then you'll relapse a little bit and then you'll start building it back up. And by the end of that seven to 10 weeks, you will be on cloud nine. You will have retrained your brain. In that amount of time, it's almost three months. In that amount of time, you created a brand new branch in your brain. You have killed the branch and all the neurons that have been reinforced and and strengthened by that negative path and that you feel you are powerless against. It's a stronghold. You've starved that and you have built a brand new branch. You've grown your brain. And now your thinking is different. That is so powerful It's what changes the course of so many people's lives. And it's just simply name that thought, take it captive, write it down, find that scripture, put that in the capture or put that in the confession box. And then in the application box, you write down what you're going to do in light of this. In light of that confession, what are you going to do? You're going to stop saying what you've just been blurting out casually. Or you won't go somewhere and do that again. Why? Because that's not me anymore. Because that's my application. I used to think this about me, but that's not me. So I'm not going to do that anymore. And you just write that application down. You put that in front of your face every couple minutes, uh, uh, every couple minutes, every day, morning, noon, and night. Boy, by the end of that time, you are a brand new person. That, my friend, is the nitty gritty of how you take your thoughts captive. Some people spend their entire Christian walk learning that one truth. And I just gave it to you for free in five minutes. You don't need... All the spiritual mumbo-jumbos and the equivalents of talismans and everything like that. You just need to take your thoughts captive maybe and wash your brain. And I'll tell you, that renewed thinking, it changes the world. It really does. When 12 men minus one who couldn't change his thoughts about himself, Judas. When 11 men found out that they are not just Weird schmoes, but they were fishers of men. They were apostles, leaders, designed to sit on thrones and rule the nation. They began to change the world. And you know what? We're more than 12. Think of what the visible church can do when we begin to wage these kinds of warfare. Isn't that good? Let's stand together. Man, oh man, oh man. I don't want to be a cellar dweller. I want to move out of the basement. I want to occupy the entire house. I want to take my thoughts captive. Wash my brain. I want to wash your brain too. And, uh, and, I, and I want to fight with character. I want my character to be such that I don't struggle with the things the devil wants to destroy me with. Anybody else want to have a renewed sense of character so you can wage warfare the way God's designed you to fight? And then, you know, the thing is, Is the heavens open up and some of the stuff you've maybe been praying for for years, God begins to break. And just blessings begin to pour out and you start just praising God. And really, it's because you've just started to walk according to the scripture. I love it. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we just ask you, come and work into our lives the nitty gritty truth, the reality of your word and your spirit. Lord, come and soften our hearts towards the things of You. Soften our minds to the things of You. And if we're struggling in any of these areas of practical love, of enemies or loving the church or loving even um, just You, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. If we have struggles in loving the lost, help us. Lord, I don't want to love in just words. I just want to love in deeds. I want my life to change. I want to be more of that loving example that you showed. Can we just pray for God to overwhelm us with His love this morning? I I felt in prayer this last week that it's like we can never give what we haven't received. Maybe you're here today and you need to have a fresh outpouring of God's love on you. And if that's you, I just want you, this is between you and the Lord. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit pours out his love on you right now. God loves you so much. He spared nothing. Heavenly Father, come Lord Jesus right now. By the power of your spirit, flood our hearts with your love. Open up our eyes that we could see a new depth, a new revelation of your love. How great it is for each and every one of us. Lord, Your love even for our enemies. Your love even for the lost. Lord, let Your love so overwhelm us that it fills us and washes out the other things that defile our heart, our mind. Lord Jesus, pour out Your love right now. Holy Spirit, come. Remove the guilt. Remove the shame. Remove the condemnation that is unfounded. Lord Jesus, come and wash. Let your mercies be felt in this room from wall to wall. Lord, let every single person in this room have a new awareness of how fresh your mercy is on us. Gentle spirit, come and work in our hearts and our minds. Take away the teeth of the enemy that is the accuser of our soul. Lord God, shower us with a greater awareness of your love. Praise you, Jesus. Praise You, Jesus. Lord, if there is bitterness in our hearts, let Your love come and just absorb that bitterness, that bitter root, change it. And let there in its place be a gentleness and love and a a compassion for others. Lord God, melt that. Praise You, Jesus. Lord, let the love that You pour out right now begin to overflow God, let it overflow into our families, into our work environment. Lord, let the love You pour into our hearts overflow into our extended family and those that come across us just in casual encounters. Lord Jesus, let there be such an overwhelming flow of Your love and Your presence that people just sense it and then You just destroy the works of the enemy by the power of Your love. God, change the way we talk. Change the way that we think. Change the way we relate to people. Praise You, Jesus. Change the way we feel about ourselves. Change the way we have talked about ourselves. Praise You, Jesus. Praise You, Jesus. Right now, in Jesus' name, we come against the idea of our future and our expectation. If you're here today and, the, and you have a negative perspective about your future, you have not let the love of Jesus change your expectation. You need to let the love of Jesus change the way you think about your future. God has not destined anyone here for destruction. That's Satan's purposes. God wants to do something wonderful in your life and through you. Your future is blessed because of the blood of Jesus. If God didn't withhold Jesus because He wanted a future relationship with you, what would He ever withhold in your future? God will supply all that you need for life and godliness. He will be meeting you at every moment. So that you will not have this negative outlook about your future. So you can overcome. That's your future. You can endure. That's your future. You can have a blessing. That blessing can look all kinds of different ways. You have hope. And even in death. The Lord doesn't come back before, you're going to die and you're going to go to be with Jesus and you're going to spend eternity in a place called heaven with no tears or sorrow or suffering. There is so much hope and expectation. It's a living hope, a living future. That is all purchased because of the love of Jesus. So right now we speak love over the future of every person here. Love over every young person. Lord, young people in this room right now, you have a future that is good, not negative. I don't care what the devil would say. Your past doesn't dictate your future. God's love does. Abide in that love. Holy Spirit, come and change our perspective. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, let your love produce a hope right now in this room hallelujah hallelujah oh praise you god oh man is there anybody here that just knows i felt like um felt like there might be people in this room that says well you know i'm not doing that great or i might mess up from time to time so I'm unsure if God can use me I'm I'm he can use some people and I know that you say you know God can use you know a lot of different people but when it comes to me Pastor Ben yeah there's just some things say eh, I just feel limited and you're disqualifying yourself because you're not perfect in everything that you're thinking of and if that's you then you need to just lay that sacred cow down on the ground kill it God is not in the business of using perfect people He's in the business of redeeming flawed and broken people and using them as an illustration of His grace and mercy. So your canvas of brokenness and flawed whatever is the canvas He's going to paint a masterpiece on. And so stop disqualifying yourself from all that God wants to do through you. You can be broken and weird and messed up, but be surrendered, submitted to God, And God will use you even in spite of yourself. Let Him. If that's you, let it go today. Heavenly Father, just give Him grace. Give Him grace sufficient to be used and to take steps forward. Your name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, I sure love you. I'm sure glad that you're here at church today. Um, We're the best church in town. I tell all of my pastor buddies, and I was like, "Yeah, my church is better than your church." I tell them all that, and they're like, "You loser!" And I am like, "Well, you should come to my church, man. You'll know too." And uh, so I'm just glad you're here. You're in the best church in the world, and uh, thanks for being here and worshiping. We're going to continue to worship and take some time praying. If you want prayer for anything specific, stay, stay for and talk with our prayer I'd be happy to be pray with you. They'd be happy to pray with you. bless the Lord. Yeah